Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. If you've got a Bible, go to Ruth chapter three. We are studying the book of Ruth together. We love to go through books of the Bible here at the Trinity Church, right? Right, right. This week though, what a weird text. This is one of the weirdest texts in all of Ruth, one of the weirdest texts in the whole Bible. How many of you were reading ahead and wondering, what is Pastor Mark gonna do with this? I'm curious myself. And we'll jump right into it in a moment. To catch you up to speed, if you are new, here's the story of Ruth. There are three primary human characters, all of whom, curiously enough, are single. There's Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. So Naomi is an older woman. She was one of God's people. She lived in a town called Bethlehem. And literally, that place that was called the House of Bread had a famine that lasted the better part of a decade. It was consequence for God's people in disobedience. So what her husband did, a man named Elimelech, he made a foolish decision to relocate his family to an entirely different nation, a place called Moab. God's people were not supposed to be there. These were not the people who loved and served the God of the Bible. They had a false religion. They worshiped another God named Chemosh. They were a very inappropriate people. They would lead God's people astray. And Elimelech made a financial decision overlooking the spiritual leadership in his family, and he relocated them to Moab, when they arrived there in time, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, like I've told you, good strong Klingon names, they ended up uh, deciding that it was time for them to marry. So they take two Moabite women who worship a false god and they marry those women. Orpah was one of the women's name and the other woman's name was Ruth. They didn't have children and then all of a sudden we see in succession Elimelech, the father dies, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion die, that leaves three widows without children, absolutely bankrupt, destitute, and struggling to survive. So Orpah makes the decision that she'll return to her father's house, she'll return to her religion and people. Naomi determines that she'll make the 30-some mile journey back to Bethlehem because she is seeking God's people and God's presence. That leaves Ruth to decide, will she go forward with Naomi or backward with Orpah? And she has essentially what we'll call a conversion experience. She covenants and commits herself to the God of the Bible, and she makes this long journey with Naomi back to God's people and presence in Bethlehem. They arrive there, and they are absolutely destitute, poor, two widows, no children, no money, no support system. They are in a dire circumstance. And so what they determine is that they will lean into God's provision of grace. And in the Old Testament, God cares for the widow and the orphan and the impoverished and the alien and the outsider. And so God made a provision in the Old Testament law that 
people could come and they could glean from a harvest. What this means is that if you owned a field and you were in business and you were transacting business in terms of agriculture, that you would literally leave the margins for the marginalized. So the marginalized could come and glean from the margins and thereby provide themselves enough food to eat and survive. So Ruth quite bravely goes venturing out to the fields, hoping that she finds a safe place and a generous landowner that loves the Lord and abides by his word. And it just so happens in God's providence that she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a single man, he's an older man, he's a successful man, he's a businessman, he's a godly man. And he happens to be in God's providence an extended relative. And so she gleans in his fields, he is very generous toward her, kind toward her, he introduces her to godly women to have community and friends, he instructs the other men not to harass or harm her in any way, he allows provision for her quite generously, he even at one occasion seats her at his table, he serves her as a friend, and it gives us the intimation that perhaps this could develop into the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. This could become a romantic relationship. Nonetheless, six or seven weeks pass, and there is no progress. Boaz and Ruth are just living their life and conducting their affairs and working their job. And time is running out because after a decade of famine, God has visited his people and he's provided for them a harvest. But once the harvest is collected, everyone returns home and Ruth and Boaz will no longer be in proximity to one another. Sensing that the time is short and perhaps being a bit impetuous, Naomi, the older woman, jumps in and determines that she will give some counsel to Ruth. And it is questionable counsel. Here we go. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? She's saying, you know, we need a plan. We don't have long-term provision. We have a serious problem. Ah, but there is potentially someone who can help us. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Oh, what about that Boaz guy? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Let me tell you men why she finds him so attractive. He loves the Lord and he has a job. All of you single men, write down those two points. Those are your action items, okay? A lot of times you'll ask a woman, what is she looking for? Whatever it is, it should be after those two first things on the list. He loves the Lord and he has a job. And Naomi surveys and she says, he loves the Lord and he has a job. That makes him a candidate. Okay, that being said, see if he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Okay, now she gives a little bit of counsel that if you are a parent will make you feel uncomfortable. Wash yourself, therefore, get all dolled and dressed up. Anoint yourself, put on some perfume so that you smell nice. And put on your cloak, get on your nice clothes and outer garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. How many of you don't like where this is going? If you're single, you're like, I like where this is going. Shame on you. If you're married and you have children, you know that this is not the counsel you would give. How many of you women would not tell your daughter, hmm, we're running out of time. Get all dressed up, smell good, wait for him to have a few drinks, and then make your move. <laughs> this is 3,000 years ago. And even today, it makes us a little uncomfortable here at church. But Okay, just read it for yourself and I'll come back in a moment after you've pondered it, okay? What's it say? What's it say? 
oh, some of you are like, I wish I could be a pastor. No, you don't. You don't want to do this for a living. Look at what this says. How am I supposed to explain this? But when he lies down, if you're single, you should never be with someone who's in the horizontal position under any circumstances. Even if they're sick, call 911, but don't get involved. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and cover his feet and lie down. And you won't even read it. It's in the Bible. He will tell you what to do. I'm sure he will. That's the problem. Right? How many of you parents would never tell your single daughter, well, wait till he has a beer and he's camping and then go in his tent and then snuggle up to him in the sleeping bag. And when he rolls over, say, tell me what to do. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay, this is at the best questionable counsel, amen? Okay, we're, we're not, this is not on a flannel graph at any Baptist church. We just read right over this. We don't even enter into this with the kids. And she replied, Ruth does all that you say I will do. Well, here's where we find ourselves. Moab is a place where people have a history of being inappropriate. And now this man, Boaz, is a Hebrew. And historically, the Hebrew men have really been interested in the Moabite women. They are the Kardashians of the Old Testament, okay? <laughs> We'll edit that out, but it's true, okay? What happens is these guys are not supposed to be with these gals, but these gals are very interesting to these guys. Now, what, <laughs> what Ruth has done is she's been gleaning in the fields of Boaz. She's all pitted out and sweaty and dirt under her fingernails and, and she's got her hair up in a bun and she's wearing her peasant dress. And every time Boaz, the wealthy affluent business owner has seen her, she's in that you know, sort of worker status, and she's not really dressed up. So what Naomi says is, let's do extreme makeover Moabite edition. Let's get you all dressed up and then send you out to be at the threshing floor. Now, what happens with this, well, let me explain the threshing floor too. The threshing floor is a place where at the end of the harvest, you would bring your grain, you would toss it into the air, and it would literally separate the wheat from the chaff. And so the chaff would blow away, and the wheat was heavier, would fall to the ground. You would assemble the grain, and this was your payday. This is your profit. This is your payroll. This is his business finally being successful. Imagine after a decade of economic downturn, right? The housing market crashed here with the double dip around 07 and 08. Imagine if that extended a decade and everyone is in dire straits and then suddenly God's grace visits the valley and things turn around and your business becomes profitable and finally there's a harvest and you're getting together on the threshing floor. What you're doing is you're determining what your total income was for that season. And it's been a decade since you've had much insofar as income goes. And so they would do all of this at the threshing floor. And it was a place that people would assemble. The guys would all get paid a percentage of whatever the earnings of the company was. Uh, Hosea, I think it's chapter nine, verse one, tells us that occasionally uh, women would show up with inappropriate motives because now you got blue collar guys on a payday at a party. I just I think this through. Not necessarily the best place for a young woman to be and there's feasting and celebration. It's the last day that they're all together before they all head home with their profits in their pockets. 
And for Naomi to say, go there, get all dressed up, wait until he's asleep and lie at his feet. Well, the commentators then have quite a range of opinion and interpretation. They range all the way from, this is a terrible idea. Who would possibly tell a young woman to do this? This is horrible advice. All the way over to other commentators that would say, oh, she trusted in the sovereignty of God to preserve Boaz and Ruth's integrity. And Naomi had such confidence in the godly character of Boaz that she did not worry about taking a risk because faith is ultimately all about taking a risk. And there is a continuum of interpretation between those two perspectives. How many of you would lean this direction? That's a really bad idea, right? All you dads raise both your hands. Okay, that's a really bad idea. Now, how many of you would be over here? You're like, yeah, maybe she was a Calvinist and trusted in the sovereignty of God and knew that God would work out all things to the glory of his name and the joy of all peoples. And you're over on this side. I, I would say at the most, you can get me somewhere in the middle. Maybe this isn't sinful counsel, but it's definitely not the best counsel. It's questionable counsel. Questionable Council. Let me say a few things about this. Number one, this is a section of scripture that we will call descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us what should happen. And so what God is doing here is he is being honest and he's letting us struggle with whether or not this was a good idea. It's something we have to think about and pray about and ponder and consider in light of the rest of his word. And maybe it's even something for you to discuss in your life group this week. But let me say this as well. The Bible is the most honest book that's ever been written and it gives us case studies of people's lives. And when it does, it leaves the messy parts messy because life is like that. How many of you have had a circumstance in your life? You're like, I don't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea. At the time, it seemed like a pretty good idea. But now that I get down the road and reflect back on it, I'm not sure if I got good counsel or bad counsel, or I, I did a good thing or a bad thing or a wise thing or a foolish thing or a holy thing or an unholy thing. I don't know what category that goes in because some of life is very clear and much of life is very unclear. And that includes our relationships, especially and particularly our romantic relationships. And I love the fact that God's word here leaves things a little unclear because it forces us to really ponder, to consider, to, to wonder, hmm, is my life in any way like hers, things I have said and done or failed to say and do that I would not do now that I have learned from them, but I'm not sure they were sinful at the time, perhaps just foolishness. The other thing I would tell you is sometimes God's people give bad advice. This is why we don't just seek Christian counsel, but wise Christian counsel. Okay, and now Naomi is a woman who does belong to the Lord. She has made a wise decision rather to relocate back to Bethlehem. But her and her husband, they didn't get any real gold stars on the parenting chart. Both of their sons married unbelieving godless women. And here Naomi is saying that this is acceptable behavior. She's the one who previously also told, told Oprah to go back to her home and back to her God. So she does know the Lord. She does make some good decisions. But when it comes to giving relationship advice, let's just say she doesn't always land the dismount. And you can be someone who knows the Lord, you can be someone who's pursuing the Lord, and you may still not be someone who's giving wise counsel. So it's not enough to just get Christian counsel, but to get wise Christian counsel. Now here's the good idea that I want you to take away. I don't believe that they are entering into this relationship in the best possible way, but, 
God is gracious. Because even when we sin, or we have errors, or mistakes, or foolish behavior, in whatever category you want to choose for this scenario, that's fine with me. Over and above it all is the providential hand of a good God who loves his children like a father. And even if his children should wander, he will take them by the hand and he will bring them back into step with him. And God is going to do that for Ruth. And I want you to understand that this is not to give you permission to make foolish decisions, to make errors intentionally, to sin against God or act foolishly. But it is acknowledging that we all have and we all will. And when we do, God is good and God is big and God is absolutely not only willing, but able to take our mistakes and to weave those into his precedent and pattern and plan for our life. And how many of you looking back, you say, I didn't do that right, but God was really gracious and things worked out okay. That doesn't mean that what you did was good. It means that God is good. And that's the story here. So what I don't want this to be for you is permission, right? To go do something like this. But I want it to be encouragement that if you have made a mistake, an error, that God is good and it doesn't need to be the end of the story because God can work that out as he works all things for his glory and your good. You're feeling a little emotionally better? We'll fix that. Okay, here's the next section. <laughs> Risky behavior. Ruth chapter three, verses six through 13. So she went down to the threshing floor, not the ideal place to send a gal, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was? Mary. Mary's in, he's in a good mood. It's payday. It's good. End of season. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So he's going to protect his investment, right? He and his coworkers, they would sleep around their harvest so that then they could distribute it and deposit it, but they need to in time protect it. Then she came softly like ninja skills. Here she comes, uncovered his feet and lay down. This is awkward, right? This is awkward. At midnight, pitch black, middle of nowhere. The man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He's an older guy. We have no indication that he's ever married. He's never been insofar as we can tell with a woman. And there's a woman. Okay. Do you know what kind of guy would find this tempting? One who is breathing. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. I don't know if she said it like that, but I am Ruth. I know she did so. I hope she didn't say it like this, but I am Ruth, your servant. I don't do a good girl voice, amen? I just don't. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Story continues. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men. Boaz is an older guy. He's an older guy, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Earlier in the book, we heard that Boaz was a worthy man. Here she is a worthy woman. That means they're going to be equally yoked and a good fit. 
And just tangentially, for those of you ladies who love the woman in Proverbs 31, she's this epitome of excellence. Uh, it's the same language used here of the character of Ruth. She's a Proverbs 31 exemplary woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, he says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's a problem. The provision in the law was if a man died, the closest living male relative, usually his brother, would take care of the people and property in his household. The problem here is that Boaz is a distant, not a close relative. He wasn't a brother to either of the boys, Malon or Kilion, or their father, Elimelech. There is someone else who is in the legal first position that he has the right, if he so chooses, to pursue a relationship with Ruth and to take care of her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So there's a complexity here. There's an obstacle to overcome. And so tension and drama comes into the story. He says, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down till the morning. What do we do with this? Well, it's at harvest time. Everybody's in a good mood. It's payday. They're at the threshing floor where everybody comes to have a good time. He has had something to eat and to drink. And here's Ruth. She is a new believer. And do you remember her story? For those of you that had joined us previously, the Moabites come from a family line headed by a man. Do you remember his name? Lot. He's got a lot of problems. That's Lot. Lot is back, I think it's in Genesis 19, back in the Old Testament. And he has two daughters who get him drunk and sleep with him and they have offspring and those are the Moabites. And so what we have here, tell me if this doesn't just feel a little uncomfortable. He's just called her my daughter. Oh man, really? Okay, this is why people don't preach through books of the Bible. It's complicated, okay? He calls her my daughter. He's an older man and she, waits until he has something to drink and then goes in while he's sleeping. That's how we got the Moabites. This is their family history. And she is, it seems, putting herself in a risky position, amen? amen. Okay. How many of you, again, you would not, if your daughter came to you and said, I'm dating a guy, what do you think I should do? You would not start in Ruth three. Well, let's get you dressed up and wait for him to go camping, right? This is a risky situation. And I believe Naomi has put her in a precarious predicament. And, and then when, when he wakes up, it's about midnight. And uh, she says, it's me, Ruth. She says, put your wing over me. Some of your translations will say, cover me with the edge of your garment. What this literally means is, she's not saying marry me. What she's saying is, if you wanna marry me, that's okay with me. That's pretty bold 3,000 years ago, not let alone today. For a Moabite woman to invite a Hebrew man to propose marriage, for a homeless gal to invite a wealthy business owner to propose marriage, for a, a woman who works <laughs> gleaning in a field to ask the owner of the field, her proverbial boss, why don't you marry me? This is a very bold, very risky, very courageous move on Ruth's behalf. Now, <laughs> and, and, and when he 
when she talks about cover me with your wing or your garment, that's the equivalent of asking for an engagement ring. Okay, how many of you are wondering this question right now? Let's see if I can read your mind. Did they cross the line? How many of you, that's, that's your question. Did they cross the line? Okay. And, and singles, let me, let me transition momentarily. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of adults are single, not married. Single, not married. So we wanna be a church that loves and serves all the people here in the valley. And we wanna be a church that's great for your family. But if we hang out a sign that says safe for the whole family, that means we're actually neglecting the majority because the majority of people are single, not married. And so Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, they serve as really good case studies and examples. And that's where God's word is not just, um, it's not just an old word, it's a timeless word. I need you to know this about God's word. God's word is not an old word, it's a timeless word. That means that it's always timely. And so 3000 years later, when many people are in the same circumstances as these people, they're older, they're single, they're away from their parents, they're living on their own and they're making their own life decisions. That is the majority of single adults today. The average man is around 30, the average woman is her late 20s when they marry. Nine out of 10 singles will Mary, they're a great case study. And the question is, did they cross the line? Because as a pastor, this is one of the questions that I get very frequently from singles and it's, where's the line? Where's the line? Where's the line? And the question with this couple is, did they cross that line? First, I would say, if you are someone asking that question, examine your heart motive. Are you trying to get as close to the line as you can? If so, your intentions are probably not good. In addition, the Bible says very little about where is the line and it instead shifts the focus to what is the time. So one of the refrains in the Song of Solomon, there's two great epic love stories in the Old Testament, Ruth, and also the Song of Solomon, and the refrain, the chorus throughout the Song of Solomon is, do not or arouse or awaken love until it's time. Do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. And so culturally, we tend to ask the question, where is the line? And the Bible says, different question, what is the time? It's not where is the line, but what is the time? And the time is marriage. It says in Genesis um, that, that a man will leave his mother and father. Okay? So men need to be self-sufficient, self independent, responsible, and then marry his wife, and then the two become one flesh. And so there is covenant and then consummation. That's the biblical teaching of marriage. Covenant, then consummation. Not consummation and then covenant, that's all the confusion. It's covenant, then consummation. Jesus and Paul both repeatedly quote this definition of marriage from Moses, ultimately from God. And that means that there shouldn't be any intimate physical relationship until you are husband and wife. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter five, verse three in the New International Version of the Bible, but among God's people, there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. So wherever the line is, it's far back so that there's not even a hint of sexual immorality. So the question is, did they cross the line? There's no indication that they crossed the line, but there's every indication that they danced on it vigorously at midnight, okay? <laughs> That's what I would say. 
I mean, this is a tightrope. They are walking, right? This is a tightrope. They are walking. I don't think they crossed the line, but I would say they danced on it vigorously in the dark at midnight. And with my kids, I would just say, please, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And because I love you, I would say, please don't do that. God is gracious with them. And if you have sinned and made mistakes in your dating relationship as Grace and I did, God can be gracious with you. But our hope and our prayer and our intent is that you would walk in obedience and that God would not have to extend particular extenuating grace to overcome your error. Let me ask you this, moving into our modern age for a moment, if we were to move from 3000 years ago with Boaz and Ruth, and we were to transport them into our current cultural context, what would they likely do at this point? They would move in together. Statistically, as I said, the majority of adults are single, nine out of 10 will marry, and the majority of those marriages will be preceded by cohabitation. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a cultural experiment that no one really knew what the implications would be, but you had the gender revolution, you had the sexual revolution, you had uh, legalization of abortion, no-fault divorce, and also birth control. And as a result, the number of people living and sleeping together and moving in together, it absolutely exploded. You extend that timeline for marriage, people are marrying today about 10 years later than they did just a few generations prior, and those years are spent cohabitating, living together. And the question is, is that way better than their way? Is the way that Boaz and Ruth are going to organize their relationship, is it antiquated and outdated, or is it wise and God's better plan? And what happens in our culture is we would look at Ruth and say, you don't have a place to live? Move in with Boaz. You don't have any income? He's a rich guy. You're single and young, he's single and old, he likes you, you like him. There's a lot of racial differences, there's cultural differences, there's historical differences. Who knows whether or not this might in fact work out? Why don't you live together and test drive marriage and see if it works for you? And that kind of is the prevailing folly of our culture. Yet, let me say this statistically, and this is from the sociologists that are not Christian, and Grace and I put this in our marriage uh, book, that if you live together before you are married, your rates of divorce, depending upon what study, are from 33 to 151% higher. In fact, living together is not preparing you for marriage, it's preparing you for divorce. Because in covenant, two become one. But if you have two last names and two bank accounts and two lifestyles and two futures, ultimately you're not one. And so there is Two people become one and there's no situation in which there is a transition where you can practice for marriage. It's a covenant that you give yourself to and then God does something supernatural where he brings the two of you to be one. And when people are violating God's intended order for marriage and they get consummation before covenant, the result is chaos, confusion, and a lot of collateral damage. And that's the culture in which we live. Furthermore, uh, statistically, those who are cohabitating have depression rates that are three times higher than married couples. Uh, furthermore, women in a cohabitating relationship are twice as likely to be assaulted than a woman in a marriage relationship and nine times as likely to be murdered than a woman in a marriage relationship. Here's the big idea. God's way is still the best way and our way isn't working. 
And the example that Ruth and Boaz set, it's not an old way, it's an eternal way. It's a timeless word, so it's very timely. That being said, the view of the scriptures is that physical is not the basis for the marital, but the spiritual is the foundation on which the physical is added for the marital. Let me explain this to you. The deepest connection between two people is at the level of the soul. It's at the level of the soul. And then you add to that the covenants of marriage and the physical relationship, but the physical relationship can never provide the same rooting and grounding as the spiritual relationship. And we'll get into this in the ensuing weeks, but this is why Couples that have the lowest rates of divorce, the highest rates of joy, the, the longest lasting marital satisfaction are to Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, prayer-uttering, hand-raising, God-worshiping Christians. Right? Because God's way is still the best way. God made us, God made marriage. God made us knowing the best way for us to be married. And when we deviate from God's will, we harm ourselves. And so God's law is not to restrict you from enjoyment. God's law is to prevent you from harm. And our culture is filled with people that have broken hearts and devastated stories and shame and guilt and condemnation, and they are haunted by the decisions of their past. God can and will forgive you. He wants to redeem and restore you, but ultimately he wants to inform you so that you can have a new course of life. And that's exactly what we see here. And were they in our day, they may not have been encouraged to conduct themselves in this way. So for you men, particularly you single men, I have a heart for all people, but especially for young men. Number one, I want you to see that Boaz sees Ruth first and foremost as God's daughter. When he refers to her on multiple occasions as daughter, he is giving her an identity that she ultimately is God's daughter, that God is her father, and he is to treat her in such a way that the father will be pleased with his conduct toward his daughter. So you single men, I need you to see women, particularly women you may be interested in a romantic relationship with, firstly, in their identity to the Lord, not in their identity to you. Secondly, for all of us men, but particularly for you single men, I want you to see that Boaz is not looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. Men are foolish when they look for a good time and they overlook a good legacy. Here he is, money in his pocket, midnight, no one could see, young vulnerable woman, There is a temptation to have a good time, but that always comes at the expense of a good legacy. Boaz is not going to shortcut God's will for his life, and I want none of us men to shortcut either. One of the most important things that all of us can do, but I would particularly compel you men toward this, is to think in terms of legacy and lineage. When we read the Bible, sometimes we read these portions where there's something called genealogies. This guy had these kids and their kids had these kids and their kids had these kids. And we think, uh, just flip the page. No, what it's showing is legacy and lineage. It's showing that God thinks in terms of generations and so should we. That God is wanting us to look down at our current circumstances and then look up at our future aspirations and make the current decisions in light of the future aspirations. Right, if you want to 
love your spouse and grow old together and raise kids who love and serve the Lord and, and raise grandkids who love and serve the Lord, all of your decisions in the present need to be made with a future in mind. And I don't wanna give the whole story away, but I would encourage you to read ahead in this great book of God's word. He's going to do things God's way. He will marry her. They do have a child. His name is Obed. And through him comes somebody named Jesus. There's a legacy. There's a legacy. That through their fidelity comes their legacy. And I want all of us to think in terms of legacy. Not just a good time, men, but a good legacy. And so now Boaz has a decision to make. Here he is in his proverbial sleeping bag at the foot of the pile of grain. And there is a young woman in the middle of the night in the dark. What will he do? The story sort of reaches its apex, its point of tension. And depending upon what Boaz will say and do will determine the course of human history. And here's the good news. His test becomes a testimony. Our testimony is our story about life with God and our testimony is always the result of our test. Boaz is in a moment of test and as a result will come his testimony. So she laid his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. So it's still dark right before the sun rises. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He not only guards her purity but her reputation. Her reputation. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley, put it on her. That's about 80 pounds. That's a lot. I mean, can you see Ruth going home like, wow, right? quite a payday. He's been very generous toward her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare my daughter? So it's morning. I mean, here's Naomi probably like, out all night, I've got to see what happened. Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz is a man who pours life into others. May we all be people like Boaz. May this church be a church like Boaz. He pours life into his employees and they praise him, we saw earlier in the book. He pours life into Ruth, honoring her and speaking to her and comforting her and commending her character. He is a man who pours life into others and he's heard, we don't even have any evidence that he's ever met Naomi, he's heard about her. He's heard her story that her husband was not a wise man and her family had been through a decade without going to church or being in God's presence or praying with God's people, that her husband died, her sons died, she had no grandchildren, and that she had returned home ashamed, alone, bankrupt, broken, and as she says, bitter. And Boaz has no obligation toward Naomi because grace will get us to do more than the law requires. And he is going to literally pour grace on Naomi. And she said earlier in the book, don't call me Naomi anymore. Her name literally meant sweet. She said, I'm changing my name to bitter because the Lord has made me very bitter. And then she said, 
because I went away empty, or excuse me, I went away full-handed and I've returned empty-handed. And she's looking at her hands and she's saying, I'm very bitter, I have no one and I have nothing and my life is empty and my soul is empty and my circumstances are empty. And Boaz says, I'll fill your hands up. I'll be generous toward you. I'll bless you. I'll give grace to you. I'm gonna pour literal life into your hands. He's a good man, amen? amen? He's a generous man. He's a giver, not a taker. He's trying to see where he can give and not what he can take. And so she returns home and she gives this lavish gift toward Naomi. She replied, wait, my daughter, till you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but he'll settle the matter today. She said, I think he's motivated. I think he'll figure it out. I think he really likes you. I think this is all gonna work out. I think that this is all gonna come together. Let's just trust the Lord. Let's let the man go figure out how to make it happen. And what he had already told her was, the law requires that another man have first opportunity, but he is going to find a way to fulfill the law and then to do that which is in his heart. And here's the big idea with Boaz. He doesn't have to pursue Ruth, he wants to pursue Ruth. He's not obligated to her, but he is drawn toward her. And this is the great love story of the Old Testament and the story of the whole Bible. Now, let me say this too. Boaz had a difficult decision to make. Ruth put him in a situation, or maybe Ruth sent Naomi, or Naomi rather sent Ruth to put him in a difficult situation. So he's got a decision to make. He wakes up, middle of the night, there's a woman, what does he do? All of our relationships, especially our romantic relationships, they're gonna have some difficult, awkward moments where we need to make a wise decision as best we can. He could have said, go home but it's dark, she's all alone, and it's the middle of the night. That's dangerous. He could have said, well, don't be near me, you'll ruin my reputation, go over there and sleep near those guys. But then that's gonna destroy her reputation and put her in danger. He could have said, hey, good to see you, and done some things that he shouldn't have done, that would have not been appropriate. He could have said, well, here, I'll protect you. We won't do anything. And when morning comes, I'll walk you home. But then it would be in the light of day and everyone would see and her reputation would be forever tarnished and destroyed. And so what he came up with was the best solution under the circumstances. Stay here so I can keep you safe. We won't do anything. You know, before the sun comes up, I'm gonna give you a generous gift for your mother-in-law and then I want you to be on the road so that when the sun rises, nobody sees you. We protect your safety and your integrity. Boy, we don't live in a world where men care much about a woman's safety or integrity. Boaz is a man who cares very deeply for this woman's safety and integrity and he preserves them both. He is a wise man, he is a godly man, he does make a good decision. A couple of things I would say as we near the end of the sermon for those of you who are single, or those of you who are parents or grandparents giving advice to those who are single, or those of you who are giving counsel to others who are single. Um, number one, we can learn from this, it's not necessarily a bad thing to get in front of someone. Now let's just say that maybe Ruth was a little, little aggressive in getting in front of Boaz, but it's okay to get in front of someone. Meaning, 
if they are in a life group and you say, you know, they seem nice and I like life groups, I'll go to that life group. Hi, my name's Boaz, nice to meet you. It's okay to get yourself in front of someone. If someone is serving in a ministry and they love the Lord, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm gonna go serve too and see if we can't just get to know one another in an acceptable circumstance. It's okay to put yourself in front of someone. This is why I'm not even opposed and some people have already asked, what do you think about online dating? I said, well, there are some ways that that's okay to get yourself in front of people just don't be inappropriate or overly flirtatious or, or, or conducting yourself in some sinful way. Number two, don't overlook the people. If you're single, don't overlook the people that are in front of you. Sometimes people are like, I'm looking for someone and there's someone right here. And you're looking over them. Like, look at who God puts in front of you. Boaz has literally been looking over Ruth for six, seven, eight weeks. And then all of a sudden he sees her, he's like, oh, I didn't know that maybe this was a possibility because I'm an older guy and you're a younger gal and yeah, you're a great gal and you love the Lord and you have character. And yeah, okay, this is a really good idea. He finally pays attention to the person that God providentially put in front of him. Number three, every relationship will have an obstacle or obstacles that need to be overcome if that relationship is to have a future, particularly a romantic relationship. For Grace and I, we met at 17. Um, we got engaged in college and we got married in college between our junior and senior year. Lots of obstacles to overcome, not the least of which was financial. Here, the obstacle for Boaz is, I'm not in legal first position to marry this woman and I don't wanna violate the law, but I do wanna be with the woman, so I'm not going to sin, but I will find a way to work through the law that God gives. That's the obstacle that he has to overcome. And I always like to tell single women, you know, if he has an obstacle to overcome, that's good because if he is willing to do what it takes to be with you, he'll do what it takes to stay with you. Number four, my last and final point for those who are single or give character or give a counsel to those who are, every relationship has character tests, especially romantic relationships. And this is for Boaz, true or false, a character test and he passes the test. And as a result of passing the character test, she feels safe with him. She can trust him. She can enter covenant with him. She can bring a child into the world with him. She can worship and serve God with him because he passed his character test and that was his testimony of his character. It's a beautiful love story in an age that's filled with so much sin, so much folly, so much rebellion in the name of freedom, which only leads to slavery. This is a great liberating love story. And the reason that we have called this series The Big Little Love Story is because this is the little love story of Ruth and Boaz, but this is not the end of the love story. The love story continues, as I said, they will give birth to a son named Obed. Read ahead and come back. And through Obed ultimately comes Jesus Christ. And what Naomi has been crying out for through this entire narrative is a redeemer. That's what she keeps saying. And a redeemer is someone who is coming from the outside to save us, to rescue us. That we've got ourselves in a circumstance, a problem, a difficulty that we cannot extricate ourselves from. We cannot deliver ourselves through. We have a problem for which we are not the solution. We have a need for which we are not the provider. And the redeemer is the one who comes in and seeks and saves and serves. The Redeemer is the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
And this little love story is all part of God's big love story from beginning to end, that we are like Naomi. We are like Ruth. We are in a position where we do not have provision, that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves. We cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot deliver ourselves. We need someone to come in from the outside. We need someone to be the hero of the story because we are at the end of our ability, capacity, and resources. And so here comes Boaz to love and serve and deliver, to be generous toward these women. He fulfills all of the obligations of the law. He goes beyond the obligations of the law and he pours out grace. And one great preacher said that Jesus Christ comes through the line of Ruth and Boaz and he comes as our great and glorious Boaz. That he comes to fulfill all the obligations of the law. He pursues us not because he has to, but because he wants to. Not because he is forced to, but because he chooses to. That he goes above and beyond and he gives us grace and he pours out of his own account into our hands his righteousness. And he takes us, the church of Jesus Christ, to be loved like a bride, to enter into a covenant and to live together in joy in his presence forever, where we sit at his table and everything we eat and everything we enjoy and everything we have is a gift from him given to those that he loves. And so this little love story is part of the great love story. Let me just say this, because I love you. If you don't know Jesus, the whole thing's about Jesus. And we would like you to give yourself and give your sin to your Savior. And for those of you who do know and you belong to and you love Jesus, we will now transition as God's people to enjoy God's presence. That was the whole reason that these two women went from Moab to Bethlehem, to be with God's people in God's presence. So Father God, we come now as your people to be in your presence. And Lord, we thank you for this amazing, epic love story that is part of the love story that is the story of human history. Lord, thank you so much that we men have an example in Boaz and that he ultimately is a little picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus, who is the greater Boaz. Lord Jesus, I thank you for us, your church, including the ladies who are present, the women who are here. We thank you that Naomi and Ruth were loved, provided for, protected, cared for. And Lord, that gives us a glimpse of the church, your bride, whom you love and whom you purchase, whom you provide for and whom you protect. And Lord God, as we enjoy this little love story, let us see ourselves in the position of Naomi, in the position of Ruth. People with great needs who do not have the solution to our problems and we need a redeemer to come in from the outside to make things right, to make things good, to make things new. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our great and glorious Boaz. We thank you for letting us glean from your field, which is this earth. We thank you for your word, which leads us and guides us and gives us instruction and correction. And I pray for us as a church, Lord God, that we would love the Lord Jesus, that we would be generous toward one another, that this would be a life-giving place, and that your word would be held high so that your people could be led well. In Jesus' name, amen.